Hey, podcast listeners. It's 6.12 in the morning, and I'm just about to put up the first post, but I'm going to read it to you before I put it up, and that way I can get a little proofreading done. Maybe I'll actually publish with no typos this time. I normally draft a post and then impulsively hit the publish button and then edit out the typos after I've published by republishing. It's a bad habit, but I've been doing it for, I feel like I'm getting close to 20 years now. What is it, 17 years? And I just can't, I can't get over that habit, but I have a new habit, which is reading the post into the podcast. And maybe that's going to make me a better proofreader. You know, I'm doing this podcast not as a ordinary podcast, but as a little thing that I'm doing for my dear husband because he wants a an audio version of the blog so that he can go about and do many things. He likes to be outside. He likes to work on a number of things that I actually genuinely appreciate. And so I'm making this reading for him. Here we go. So the first post of the day is from a transcript of a rally that President Trump did in Duluth, Minnesota yesterday. Um, the day Yesterday was the day after the debate, so there was a lot in the news about the debate. And I was interested to see what he said about the debate. He was getting trashed for the way he behaved in the debate. And, uh, oh, it was just terrible, the worst debate ever, and the worst president ever, and so forth. So what is, but he went out there to Duluth, and he did another one of his rallies, and what did he say? So I have a little um, paragraph that is from the beginning of the debate, where he's, uh, uh, from the beginning of the rally, where he's talking about the debate. So this is all a quote from Trump. I really enjoyed last night's debate with Sleepy Joe. The verdict is in, and they say that we... We, all of us, won big last night. In the history of cable television, it had the highest ratings. Last night, I did not want the corrupt media has refused to do. I did want, hmm, there's something wrong with that part of the quote. Jeez. Um, Let's look at the transcript here. Last night... I really enjoyed last night. I brought a... Okay, the verdict is in. In the history of... uh, Okay. I don't like this. Now I'm going to... I had to add some extra words in brackets because the transcript was missing something. So, hmm. Last night, I did want to do what the corrupt media has refused to do. I held Joe Biden accountable for his... 47 years of lie, 47 years of betrayal, and 47 years of failure. I held Joe accountable for shipping your jobs and dreams abroad and for bowing to the violent mob at home. Can you imagine these people, the way they take over these Democrat cities? I don't even believe it. The whole nation saw the truth. Joe Biden is too weak to lead this country. You know, Biden lost badly when his supporters are saying that he should cancel the rest of the debates. Now, I understand he's canceling the debates. Let's see what happens. 
I think that's not going to be a good move. I don't think that's going to be a good move. Television with those ratings, they're not going to let them cancel. You don't know television like that. What are they going to do? Someday, we're not going to be doing this anymore. What are they going to do without Trump? What are they going to do? What are they going to do when 8, 12, maybe 16 years? I said, let's hang it up. Let's hang it up. 16 more years. But what's he doing? But what he's doing is what you do when you lose. But what he's doing is what you do when you lose. Let's see what he does. I don't think he's going to get that. I've got news for Joe. If you ever become president, you have to deal with some of the toughest people in the world. And Chris Wallace is very, very easy by comparison. I will tell you, I know him. I know him well. Liberal media is upset that I took the fight to Biden and exposed his very dangerous agenda. And I said, that's the discussion of the debate. He claims to have won because the ratings were so high. That's his measure of success. But he's wrong about the ratings. According to Nielsen, the New York Times reports, there was a 13% decline from the first presidential debate in 2016, 73 million versus 84 million. But 73 million is still a lot, and perhaps the Nielsen numbers came out late and Trump was relying on some earlier estimate. Getting the facts wrong isn't as bad as excessive reliance on ratings. People were watching, but what did we think of the event? What did we think of him? I've seen some very negative reviews. Ah, well, you could say he's forefronting the ratings because it's his best point. Maybe he knows he screwed up. And he did screw up, in retrospect. He kept up the pressure on Biden with constant interruptions and abuse. And Biden held up and stood his ground. The strategy failed. And now he has... The strategy failed. Now, you know what happened there? In the middle of my recording, my alarm went off. I'm using my iPhone to record this. And the um, and I had it, it's also my alarm clock, so I have my alarm set. I've been up for a long time, but that's my backup alarm in case I don't get up. And uh, I, I set my alarm, so I like to wake up naturally, but I want to at least get up in time to get out and do my sunrise run. But um, I should have turned the alarm off before starting to use the iPhone to record this podcast. So that's one more thing to learn. And um, I could um, I could start up again. So the alarm going off, it intervened and cut off the microphone I was using to record. Isn't that bad? But uh, let me back up a little bit and just so that I haven't made a confusing recording. Sorry. Um, Again, this is a very casual recording that has something to do with um, my husband who wants a recorded version of the blog. If you're here and you're not him, then you're, you're listening in and I'm allowing you to listen in. And, uh, if if it's too casual for you, then then fine. But you know maybe maybe the casualness is good. If the casualness is good, then this is good for you. I'm not going to worry about that because um, I'm only doing what's working for me and for him. And I'm letting other people listen just in case you like it. I, you know I listen to some podcasts that are very long, and the person is talking 
in a more casual way, and, and I actually like to have that. So I'm doing something that I, it's not really original, except to the extent that it's about writing a blog. So uh, you're, you're kind of getting the backstage view of, of writing the blog, let me put it like that. Um, so it needs to work for me. It needs to be something that's casually interwoven with my daily practice of writing the blog. It's not some extra formal show type show. Ironically, or interestingly, uh, coincidentally, I'm in the middle of telling you about a post where um, Trump is concerned with doing a show, Trump's presidency as a show the TV show that was the debate. Um, I, I think, uh, so anyway, I, the, I, now I'm trying to remember where, where I broke off. I said, um, let, let's, let's start here. And he did screw up in retrospect. Trump screwed up. In retrospect, looking back at the debate, we can see that Trump screwed up because the strategy, it might have worked. Maybe it had a 50-50 chance of working. And if it had worked, it would have been great. So he's rolling the dice, uh, doing the debate the way he did, thinking that in 90 minutes, it's if he keeps it up, uh, Biden will have a break, and Biden's break will be so overwhelmingly bad that the badness of Trump provoking him uh, will be overshadowed by the badness of Biden breaking down in front of the cameras. That would have been grisly and gruesome, but it didn't happen. Biden stood up. However, bad or good Biden was, he didn't break down. He was able to stand there for 90 minutes and give answers that were not incoherent. So the standard was, the, the um, expectations were low for Biden, and he did as much as he needed to do. So, uh, and he did screw up in retrospect. He kept up the pressure on Biden with constant interruptions and abuse, and Biden held up and stood his ground. The strategy failed, and now he has to worry that Biden can refuse to do the other debates. Biden can say he proved what he needed to prove, and Trump proved that he was abusive, and it would be wrong to give Trump another chance to behave like that. Trump used to be able to say, Joe is hiding in his basement because his people don't want you to see that he's in a, sad, a state of sad geriatric decline. Now he's switched to saying the show must go on because the ratings are high. He's talking showbiz, television. With those ratings, they're never going to let them cancel. He knows television. You don't know television like that. You don't know television like I know television. He's a TV star. They can't cancel his show. It's huge. He raves, what are they going to do when in eight 12, maybe 16 years, I said, let's hang it up. Let's hang it up. 16 more years. Who's the, who's the they? The media, I think. What will they do without him and his ratings? TV wants Trump to have a second term because Trump is good TV. Everyone wants to watch the show. The Biden show will be so dull. No one will want to watch you know, some of us think it would be good for Americans to turn away from the politics on television. It really is quite shallow and soul-deadening, but somehow, with Trump, we can't turn away. If it's all about the ratings, 
Winning the election is getting the show renewed. He'll win because it's a good show. He'll be renewed not just for eight years, but 12, maybe 16 years. Why'd he say 12 or 16 when he's term limited at eight? Because it's good TV. It gives the talking heads something to talk about. They can't resist. They've already shown that they love to get melodramatic about the potential for Trump to find a way to refuse to leave office when his term is up. That's the kind of junk news TV we steep our brains in night after night. Trump says we're addicted to it, and the media know. There are suppliers, and that's how they make their money. So that's why he'll win the election. They're going to redo the Trump show. What a sick, sad delusion. Or if you get Trump and you're still with him, you can say something like, Trump is a tireless optimist. He knows it went badly for him last night, but he won't feel sorry for himself and he won't give up. He talks about whatever is best. Here it's the ratings and the greatness of the TV show he's making spontaneously day to day for us, the people. Yes, he exaggerates the numbers, the ratings, the potential years he can hold office, but the heart of it is true. It's a great show, a cage match, and there should be no feeling, no feeling sorry for Joe Biden. He deserved a hard fight, and he'd better come back for two more fights, and Trump will trash talk and taunt him until he does. Now, um, I one, sometimes you can understand things about the posts from reading the tags, so, so you can get an extra insight by reading the tags. I stopped in as I was uh, drafting this post to add a tag I like called I'm for boring. And that's when, um, you know, I got to this idea that Trump is saying that the show needs to be renewed because it will be so dull to have Joe Biden. And Joe Biden is president. What will the media do? Who will watch these talk shows the last four years? You know, I characterized the media as kind of the um, dealers of this drug we're addicted to. And they won't be able to stop the, they, they need Trump to be president so that they can deal this drug of this addictive television. But um, uh, it's really also the case that the media is addicted to Trump and Trump is the dealer. The media needs him. He imagines the media will keep him going, will keep buying the drug. But the media, so the media, will, will the media ensure that Trump gets elected? They're not, they're not really doing that. If that, if that's their long-term interest, then they should be credited with uh, being uh, public, uh, uh, public servants who aren't serving their self-interest because they seem to be trying to get Trump booted out. And, uh, and so they'll, they'll lose their ability to get the drug that is the addictive Trump. But anyway, when, when I was drafting the post and I got to the part where I'm talking about uh, how the Biden show will be dull, um, I added my old tag, I'm for boring. And my point there is that I don't think human life should be about watching what politicians do day to day, that it would be better to have a boring person in office, hopefully running things competently. But uh, we should get over uh, politics as a show. The show should be our own individual lives, not everybody watching some big guy at the top, big orange guy. Big orange guy. Hi there. Did you get up? Oh, I'm going to point at the iPhone to indicate that I'm currently recording so that if you speak, you'll be on the recording. I put a post up. I recorded it so that you can listen to it. I did it for you.
and uh, and you're still on the recording if you speak. So I'm in the middle of speaking. So if you want to be heard, speak now. If not, I'll keep going. It's early morning. It's approximately sunrise, and I'm not out doing my sunrise run because you know what I did? I I actually fell. I I was walking in the dark and I thought, didn't you hear that crash? Did you hear that crash? There's a little step between where I work and where I go over to put something in the sink. And I didn't have the light on, but I know where the step is. And I was even thinking as I was walking toward that step, I can walk in the dark because I know exactly where everything is. And no sooner did I have that thought, that feeling of competence and confidence, then I knocked into the edge of that step and uh, fell down, dropped my the bowl that I had had some yogurt in, and it went crashing across the floor. Fortunately, the bowl didn't break, and, and uh, I don't think I broke either. But I thought at the time, this is when you put ice on your knee. Elevate and ice. You know, I'm the one who is always told, elevate, put ice on it, and I don't want to do it, and I don't do it. But I actually made myself do it. And I'm pretty much okay. I'm I'm actually good at falling. I should, uh, you know, I don't want that to be something you go back to and find someday when I've really fallen. But, uh, yeah, that happened. So I'm sitting here with my foot elevated, my leg elevated, and, and ice on my knee. And I'm not running. Anyway, it's going to rain. I have a feeling that the sky is very overcast. So not running was a little bit overdetermined. I, I hate to give it up, especially since I think it's really going to be raining later and it'll be hard to get out and get some steps. Get some steps. Do you record your steps and then say, I got to go for another walk because I have to get it up to 10,000 steps? Personally, I don't do that. I don't keep track of the numbers. Unlike Trump with his ratings, I don't keep track of the numbers. Um, but... Uh, but I do like to get out a little bit. And uh, getting out for the sunrise works well for me. It's especially nice in the summer when it's cool. Now it's starting to get cold around here. I just looked at the weather and I saw there's a frost advisory for tonight. So that's a little bit, uh, that's telling you something about the passage of time. But uh, so I added the tag, I'm for boring. And this is a tag that I've had for a long time, but I, I, I last used it on a, on September 3rd of this year. I, I don't know exactly why. Something about Biden. Maybe I, I said I liked an ad because it's so bland and ordinary. Um, trying to remember it seems like something that could have run on broadcast TV in the 1970s. It could reach me in my I'm for boring place. I did vote against Trump in 2016 because I thought he was too weird to be president. He's still very weird, but I've gotten used to him. He's the prevailing norm in a hellish year. I think Americans can be lured into dully hoping that to vote for Biden is to turn the page. Um, So this was a a Biden ad called We're Listening. It was just a standard political ad, old-fashioned and conventional, I said. Uh, before that, I uh, had something about Kanye West. He's not boring, so he's the opposite of the I'm for boring concept. Something back on Super Tuesday. Oh, yeah, back when the, during the primaries, I kept uh, getting back to 
saying I'm for Amy Klobuchar because um, I, I like some, I like, I, I'm for boring. I, I just want an ordinary person who doesn't demand that much attention from us to take care of the work that needs to be done by the president. Basically the complete, the complete opposite of uh, Trump. Um, I said, uh, in, in that post, I brought up Walter Mondale. I voted for Mondale back in the day, and uh, he represents the idea of being for boring. <laughs> I like boring. Um, yeah. So th these tags go way back if you want to search the tag and see how many times I've spoken of this idea a lot. I've spoken. I hope you can see why I'm giving this my I'm for boring tag. I'll just leave it at that. It was in something, something that had, um, that had AOC in it. Hmm. Hmm. She's not boring. See, I, I think politics should be boring. I don't like, I don't like radical change. You know, Trump is trying to appeal to that interest by saying Joe Biden is a big radical. He'll do all this far left stuff. But uh, Joe Biden doesn't seem radical at all. Uh, Trump is trying to appeal to my fear of, uh, or my distaste, my justified distaste for overly exciting changes and uh, uh, politics. But uh, he himself is overly exciting. So yeah, I think if you like boring, uh, the idea that what you like is Biden is kind of obvious. But, uh, but I don't like Biden. I'm not saying I like Biden. I don't like anybody. And, and see, that's the I'm for boring instinct. It's, I sort of want nothing, nobody. Nothing is good. I like, I, I like a, a sort of a basic, not much is happening. Like 2020 is a very exciting year. There's all this crazy stuff happening, fires, COVID, riots in the street. I don't like it. I'd rather have a completely boring year and let the interestingness be in our personal lives. Can we have that back again? Normal life? So I've got to come back to this Philip Guston story because there's an open letter on Philip Guston Now. Philip Guston Now is the name of an art exhibition a retrospective on the artist Philip Guston, who has a series of paintings that have images of the KKK, like hooded figures, cartoon-style hoods, and they're used in paintings, high art paintings, that have a sort of cartoonish quality. Um, and uh, we, we talked about them on the blog a few days ago, and I, they're in one of the early podcasts a couple episodes ago or so. And we I give you a link in the new post to the older blog post about it. But I'm reading the open letter, and I'm also reading a New York Times article about the open letter. The New York Times article is by the art critic Jason Farrago. And um, I begin the post with a quote from the open letter. It's an open letter from nearly signed by nearly 100 artists, curators, and critics uh, that accuses the four museums of hiding away from controversy. That, uh, that's a quote from the headline in the New York Times. The Philip Guston show should be reinstated. 
an open letter signed by nearly 100 artists, curators, and critics accuses four museums of hiding away from controversy. A long postponement is, is an admission because it's a postponement, a four-year postponement. They're not canceling the retrospective, they're postponing it for four years. A long postponement is an admission. These institutions are not up to the job. So first comes the excerpt from the open letter. But the people who run our great institutions do not want trouble. They fear controversy. They lack faith in the intelligence of their audience, and they realize that to remind museum goers of white supremacy today is not only to speak to them about the past or events somewhere else, it is also to raise uncomfortable questions about museums themselves, about their class and racial foundations. For this reason, perhaps, those who run the museums feel the ground giving way beneath their feet. If they feel that in four years all this will blow over, they are mistaken. The tremors shaking us all will never end until justice and equity are installed. Hiding away images of the KKK will not serve that, that end. And the art critic in the New York Times, Jason Farrago, writes, for as the artists suggest in their open letter, the reason to reinstate Philip Guston now is not, or certainly not only, because he passes some anti-racist litmus test, it is to continue and accelerate the transformation of our museums into institutions that can do justice to the work of all artists and the experiences of all publics. Do justice to the work of all artists and the experiences of all publics. A museum unequipped to exhibit Guston will never be able to show truly problematic artists like Paul Gauguin or Francis Picabia, but just as inevitably it will fail Matthew Barney's mythopoetic melding of bodies, Joan Jonas's culturally hybrid meditations on gender and climate, Adrian Piper's exacting probes of self and stereotypes, close quote. And I say, Barney, Jonas, and Piper are all signatories of the open letter. The New York Times critic says, really, a museum unequipped to exhibit Guston is barely a museum at all, or else only a museum in the most derogatory sense, a dusty storehouse of dead things. And then he, the New York Times critic, suddenly in his last paragraph talks about, can you guess? And I do a page break so you have a chance to guess. So podcast, I'll give you a moment. Can you guess what the art critic in the New York Times suddenly shifts to talking about? Trump. This is the last paragraph in the New York Times piece by, by Jason Virago, the New York Times art critic. This week, at the first presidential debate, the incumbent was asked if he would condemn white supremacy outright. His response was to tell one of these white supremacist groups to stand back and stand by. It was only the latest reminder that our art institutions cannot afford anything less than a united front against racism and anti-Semitism and should not be spooked by their own shadows when actual hatred is already at the gates, close quote. And I said, I'm sorry, but this is incoherent. You can't say that museums must courageous 
courageously present truly problematic artists and that they must staunchly maintain a united front against racism and anti-Semitism. The New York Times article trips over itself and so does the open letter which decries the museum's timidity about getting into trouble because the meanings of the paintings, it, the meaning of the paintings isn't blatantly obvious, but also vigorously insists that the artist's racial politics are exactly right. They say Guston's paintings insist that justice has never been Guston's paintings insist that justice has never yet been achieved. Paintings insist. No, they don't. And that shouldn't be the point. Paintings, unless they're raw propaganda, don't insist. They entice and intrigue. They scare and confuse. They make you worry that you're thinking something forbidden and dangerous. They don't soothe you and reinforce your pre-existing, pre-sanitized ideas. They're transgressive. They're complicated. Or who gives a damn about art? What if high art and museums are white supremacy? Now that's a scary idea for the trustees. Pity them in their need to withdraw for four years to work that one out or to hope that the culture calms down and lets them live with their doubts and decrepitude. So that's the post. You know, I mean, I don't like the censorship. I think they should put the show on, but I think that the art critic in the New York Times and the artists in their open letters are hedging things because they are also afraid. They don't have to put up a show and have paintings that are worth millions of dollars be up on display where uh, protesters might think they could come in there with their sledgehammers and bust up a fancy painting just like they bust up a middle-class uh, storeholder shopkeeper's window and takes their uh, running shoes for free. You know, this is property that can be damaged. The museums are afraid. Uh, the artists with their open letter, the New York Times with this column, they don't have to worry that their words will be destroyed. Words are great for that reason. But uh, there, there is a um, fear that you see in the art critic and in the artists who are signatories to that letter. You can see in, that, in those words that they really need to be considered right. You know, isn't that what white fragility is? I mean, there's a lot of incoherence there because they want it to be believed that they're all sanitized and right and proper about all things racial. Uh, and yet they're arguing for high art, which has always been about ambiguity and complication. And frankly, uh, being uh, saleable to wealthy people and usable for assets to increase over the years. There is some complexity in that. And uh, that used to be the stuff of high art, and they're still promoting that. We can see that the signatories to the letter are trying to be transgressive and challenging us, the audience. Uh, and yet they want to act like they're all politically correct about everything that they need to be politically correct about. Of course, they're all completely anti-racist, but I think that uh, in, in critical race theory, you never get that clean bill of health. You, you're always still guilty. You always still have a problem. So there's a basic incoherence to all of this and a, a lack of sympathy with the museum, which needs to actually protect the extremely valuable objects. Or why not have a big protest in the museum? 
why don't the protesters come into the museum and suddenly a rampage and use their sledgehammers the way they have used them against the middle class shop owners? I'm not suggesting that. I hate all violence. Uh, but uh, the museums do have a lot to do with very rich people and very valuable objects. And I don't see any confrontation with that. So I see, reading in the New York Times, an overhaul of the Army's physical fitness training manual rebranded this rebranded this week as the FM 722 Holistic Health and Fitness Manual, has chapters on setting goals, visualizing success, spiritual reading, uh, spiritual readiness, and yes, the art of the nap. Soldiers can use short, infrequent naps to restore wakefulness and promote performance, the new manual advises. When routinely available, sleep time is difficult to predict. Soldiers might take the longest nap possible as frequently as time is available. To promote good sleep, the manual warns soldiers to avoid video games, texting, and other screen activity before bed, and recommends winding down by listening to soothing music, reading, or taking a warm shower or bath instead. It also says to avoid alcohol before sleep. I didn't even know you could take a bath in the army. There are bathtubs? During deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan, commanders often failed to prioritize sleep. Changing schedules, long duty shifts, overnight missions led to chronic fatigue that fueled a voracious dependency on energy drinks, which left many troops feeling frazzled. And I said the article discusses feeling frazzled, but not suicide and PTSD. The mental problems of military personnel obviously extend to much more serious conditions than the feeling of frazzlement, but this article is trying to be a bit light, perhaps coaxing women into trying the army lifestyle. Quote, the manual also has a section on the importance of spirituality, with entries on meditation, journaling, and how the act of serving others helps some soldiers realize the interconnectedness of all things and people. And I said, the interconnectedness of all things and people, that would include the enemy. I'd like to hear more about how the realization of the interconnectedness of all things and people makes an effective military, but I'm not going to say it doesn't. It's never been my job to be prepared to do violence to my fellow human beings. On the subject of making the army woman-friendly, I must add that my mother was a whack in World War II. I never heard my mother say one word against the army. And I myself have the highest regard for the Army. I know for a fact that I wouldn't exist if it weren't for the Army, because that's where my parents met. I do have a wistful heart twinge for the non-existent offspring of the two marriages that would have happened if my mother and father had continued their young lives where they had grown up and gone to college. And that's enough journaling for me right now. On the subject of feeling frazzled, I wondered where the word frazzle comes from. Is it a real word or slang? The OED marks it as slang or colloquial, originally dialect. What's it slang for? It comes from fray, what happens to the edges of a piece of cloth. Fray is used metaphorically to refer to human emotions, just like frazzle, but frazzle sounds more nervous. Something about those Zs, like dazzle and sizzle and fizzle and drizzle.
So I went back and found the old live blogging of the debate between Joe Biden and Paul Ryan. That was on October 11, 2012. And I excerpted what I'd live blogged at the time to basically make the point Biden continually interrupts Ryan in a way I find incredibly annoying. And I wanted to see that because it related to the debate this week where everyone's talking about Trump's debate behavior. It's making me view Trump's debate behavior in a different way. I hated the way Biden treated the very polite, earnest Midwesterner Ryan. So all of this that follows is excerpted. There's some ellipses you would see in print. I'll, I'll pause a little, but I'm not going to call too much attention to them. But basically, this is all stuff I blogged in real time as I watched it back in 2012. Biden is being rude, laughing and mouthing words. Biden mutters an interruption. When Biden is given a turn, he calls what Ryan said malarkey. Ryan is speaking earnestly, and Biden is chuckling toothily, his body shaking like Santa Claus. When Ryan speaks, Biden is laughing clownishly again. It looks just awful. Biden is acting as though he cannot physically tolerate Ryan having a turn to speak. Biden continually interrupts Ryan in a way I find incredibly annoying. While Ryan is talking, Biden sighs long and loud. Biden interrupts. Ryan says, Mr. Vice President, I know you're under a lot of duress to make up for lost ground, but I think everyone will be better served if we don't keep interrupting each other. I love the politeness of if we don't keep. We, when Biden had been an interruption machine and Ryan had barely interrupted and only occasionally has talked over to keep from losing his turn. The moderator, Martha Raddatz, has done nothing at all to control Biden. The stress level is rising. Biden is so angry. Why is he yelling? Ryan needs nerves of steel not to lose his cool. I'm impressed that Ryan, when he gets his turn, is able to speak in an even natural voice. It's hard to concentrate on the policy itself because the emotional static is so strong. That debate was so annoying. Some of the CNN commentators are talking about how Biden did what he came to do to fire up the Democrats. This was not for the independents, says Van Jones. Okay, well, but independents were watching, and Biden was horribly rude. He created this disturbing atmosphere of anxiety. So that's the end of the 2012 stuff. And I said at the end of this post, debating Trump, Biden got a big serving of what he dished out eight years ago. Ryan did a fantastic job of maintaining his cool, staying substantive, and going high when Biden went low, and then he lost the election. I'm sure Biden would have been willing to do what he did in 2012 and be completely rude and irritating as hell once again, but he's eight years older, and more importantly, Donald Trump is not Paul Ryan. Trump is Trump, and Trump saw the ultra-polished and polite Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan go down to defeat. The next post is a quote from Drudge Report, a Trump ally in 2016 stops boosting him for 2020, a rift between the president and the online news pioneer Matt Drudge 
is playing out in pithy headlines and needling tweets as the campaign heats up. And that's a New York Times article. Here's the quote. Mr. Drudge effectively invented clickbait, wrote the Columbia Journalism Review. Frank Rich, writing in the Times in 1999, said he was a grandstander whom many, I included, once speared as the devil of journalism incarnate. Journalist Matthew Lisiak, author of The Drudge Revolution, said in an interview that rival, webs rival websites are licking their chops. They see blood in the water. But he noted that there may be another factor in the Drudge Report's recent loss of traffic, the rise of social media. Matt Drudge was always first at everything, but not anymore, not even close. Twitter's first, Mr. Lesiak said. For years now, people have been wondering who the next Drudge is, but it isn't a person. It's a social media revolution, and he sees the, that writing on the wall. But Mr. Drudge has a deep desire and a talent for staying relevant, Mr. Lesiak said. Betting big on Mr. Trump did the trick in 2016. Betting against him could work this time around. Mr. Lisiak suggested that readers who expected Mr. Drudge's site to stay true to one line of political thought were misguided. In reality, while Matt Drudge has his own personal political opinions, his website has absolutely no loyalty to any political party or ideology, he said. Now he's thinking long-term, really putting his political capital on a Biden candidacy. And if that happens, he will, cause, he will once again weaponize his site on behalf of more conservative causes. But, but wait, didn't you hear that Matt Drudge sold the Drudge Report? And that's why it changed? Well, I found this in the New York Post. Uh, Matt Drudge rumored to be seeking investors for Drudge Report. And this also has quotes from Lisiak. I mean, Lisiak has a book about Drudge that's coming out. So are these really news stories, or is this just Lisiak being successful, placing quotes from himself and promoting his book? I think the latter, but I don't really know. But it interests me that the New York Times and uh, the New York Post had these articles um, basically at the same time. So this is from the Post, the New York Post. I think the rumor that Matt would sell or has already sold Drudge Report is completely unfounded. And this is Lisiak is quoted here saying that. I think the rumor continues to gain traction because people can't understand why Matt has weaponized his website for the Biden campaign. It's not just whispers from low-level people. It's people in the Trump orbit who are fishing for information, Lisiak said. A lot of them were huge Matt fans in 2016, and now they are not. The famously reclusive drudge wasn't reachable for comment. But Paul Singer, the billionaire hedge fund founder and Republican donor whose name has surfaced as a political buyer, whose name has surfaced as a potential buyer, of a stake in Drudge's popular news website adamantly denied any involvement. Drudge has, and I said, Drudge has fallen from a billion page views a month to only 20 million views a month. You can get a lot of page views from people just impulsively checking what the top headlines look like. I know I used to check Drudge with a feeling that I was seeing what was happening right now, a process that took about one second 
I imagine that the page views I get are more substantial. Who knows? I got 2.4 million page views last month, if you want to compare. 20 million views versus 2.4 million views. But I think people are reading my blog a little more deeply. Uh, I don't really see myself in competition for Drudge. Other than that, I think he makes a tremendous amount of money on it. Does he? Maybe he doesn't. Uh, anyway, so that was that post. And then I have, um, I've got another one here. I put up a picture of the sumac in the dawn light yesterday. I put up, uh, after that, um, if you think you need the, uh, uh, it's a tweet from Donald Trump, President Trump. Why would I allow the debate commission to change the rules for the second and third debates when I easily won last time? Now, a lot of people think Trump didn't win, so you have to read his tweet in that context. And what I think the tweet means is that he's trying to say that Biden's desire to get the rules changed ought to be read to mean that he thinks he lost the debate. Right? Why change? Well, if you won so well and... Trump was so terrible, then why change the rules? Why not do it again and win again? So the one that wants to change the rules ought to be interpreted as the loser. That's the meaning of Trump's tweet there. And I, I titled that post, If you think you need to change the rules, you must be revealing that you believe you lost. And I'm looking down at the comments. Some people said, why don't you read some of the comments in the, uh, in the podcast? But it's a little hard to do unless I pre-read them and mark them. Um, I'll read uh, Balfagor. He's a great commenter who's been around for a long time. Let's see what he said shortly after that post went up. He said, he's basically right, though, isn't he? If Biden's supporters really thought it went well for Biden and badly for Trump, why would they be agitating for a rule change or cancellation? The outcome seems to have been mixed. Biden didn't do well, but he outperformed the extremely low expectations Trump set with his trash talk. My expectations were not quite as low as that, but Biden outperformed them by regurgitating his talking points successfully, managing to follow the thread better than he often has in recent interviews, and not obviously falling apart as it got late. But Trump didn't do a great job. Subjectively, my impression is that he talked over Biden more than he did Clinton, has someone tracked this? But I didn't sit down to watch all the way through in either 2016 or now. A few memorable in interjections, you'd be in jail, would go a lot further than endless cable news crosstalk. Hey, that makes me think of something, which is that uh, back in 2016, when Trump debated Clinton, there was a lot of talk that he was dismissive toward her because she was a woman or that there was something sexist in the way he treated her. But if he treated uh, Biden worse than he treated Clinton, then he should get points for not being sexist. But he doesn't get points from the media for doing anything, so that won't happen. But I just wanted to remind you that there was some uh, lots of talk back in 2016 that his treatment of her was sexist. I could do a separate post on that, but now that I've said it in the podcast, maybe I'm done with that point. And the next post is um, uh, 
actually about Stevie Nicks because I was reading this piece in the uh, uh, L.A. Times, The Moonlight Confessions of Stevie Nicks. And I picked this out for the quote. She has always been a night owl, but has recently become nocturnal, typically going to bed around 8 a.m. She attributes the change in her sleep pattern to the news, which she says she watches constantly. And I said, in case you were wondering if it is possible for you to live your life like Stevie Nicks, yes, it is. Put on the TV news and watch the news all night. Go to bed after a few of the morning shows. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Oh, the glamour. And this is also a quote from the LA Times article. She does not have a computer. She does not have an iPhone. But it doesn't have... uh, Wait, she does not have a computer. She does have an iPhone, but it doesn't have cellular service. And she uses it only as a camera. Wait, she's a big news junkie. She watches TV news all the time, but she doesn't use her iPhone for anything but a camera. I question this information. Despite her distaste for social media, Nix has gone viral a few times in recent months. Earlier this week, the internet discovered a TikTok video in which Dogface 208 skateboards while singing along to Fleetwood Mac's dreams swigging from a container, a big container, of cran raspberry juice and generally living his best life. And I said, oh yes, I saw that. It underscores the notion that steviness is accessible to all. And I've embedded the video of, uh, of Dogface, Dogface 208. Uh, he was, he's got a big, uh, I guess it's a half gallon uh, container of uh, cran Cran raspberry juice, and he's uh, tooling along rather quickly on the skateboard while photographing himself, holding out his right hand, and in his left hand he's got the big container of juice, and he's uh, casually drinking while speeding down the highway, and uh, and the song Dreams is playing. I thought that was pretty cool, and uh, it might be the end of the posts for today. Other than that, I'm going to put up a cafe in the end of the day. I know what it's going to be. I didn't go out for my run today, as I've already admitted. So I don't have a current sunrise picture. But I do have a picture that I caught on the walk we took yesterday of a tree growing in a strange place, a tenacious tree. So tenaciously hold on until tomorrow. It's uh, October 2nd, the morning of the harvest moon. It was the harvest moon last night. Do you know what the harvest moon is? It's the full moon closest to the equinox, the fall equinox. So we were out running on Lake Mendota this morning, and as we were driving over, we saw the beautiful moon. Wasn't even sure it was the full moon. You know, it could be the waning gibbous 99% visible moon which is what we're going to get tonight. But last night was indeed the full moon. So what's left of the moon in the morning is, I take it, the, still the full moon, still the harvest moon. Well, we heard some interesting birds out at dawn on Lake Mendota. And I just put up a post, a new bird song at dawn on Lake Mendota today. Can you tell me what it is? And uh, listen. Yeah. 
anyway, that's not an, don't, don't identify my little attempt to imitate the bird. You have to go to the video, to the blog, look at the video, play the video. Anyway, uh, it's soft. The sound of the bird is soft but clear at the beginning of this video, which scans the same expanse seen in the rainbow panorama two days ago. There's a link on the blog. You can see I took a panorama picture of the same view where I go to see the sunrise. And a lot of people like that panorama. It had a, an interesting light that looked very much like some uh, romantic uh, painting from the 19th century. People were comparing it to various artists and giving me credit for something that was just actually in nature that I happened to be there to, to catch and to realize would be a good panorama. But today I took a video that scanned the same space. And I mostly took the video because I wanted to get that bird song. Maybe you could help me identify it. And um, uh, do notice the moon at the beginning of the video. I'll give you a still for reference. So I've got a picture of the moon. It does not look yellow to the naked eye. It did not look yellow to the naked eye. It looked white. It is a full moon. It's the harvest moon. Overheard at Meat House. You don't mind if I have your voice in this video. I don't know, what was I saying? Oh, nothing. Rah! It was an unusual mead song. The rah was some kind of bird-like unusual sound. Anyway, I forget what we say in the video, but there's a little bit of us talking toward the end of the video. Not at the beginning of the video. At the beginning of the video, it's your chance to hear the unusual mead song. I mean, <laughs> bird song. Anyway, I woke up this morning, looked at the iPhone, and saw the shocking news that um, Trump tests positive for first for for corona, Trump and the first lady. Trump tests positive for the coronavirus. That's the New York Times headline with a subheadline: "The president's result came after he spent months playing down the severity of the outbreak that has killed more than." 207,000 in the United States, and hours after insisting that the end of the pandemic is in sight. And I said, when did this begin? Was he sick at the debate? I thought he looked weary, and his performance was off. He seemed underpowered at his Minnesota rally the next day. Did he expose Joe Biden? Both Trump and Joe have extra vulnerability. Trump is, Joe is older, Trump is uh, more overweight. I mean, I don't think Joe Biden is overweight at all. He looks fairly fit, but Trump looks really out of shape. Uh, I just uh, don't think he would do well if he got sick, but maybe as the asymptomatic kind, who knows? And uh, Trump is also over 70. He's got the vulnerability in the age, but he's got the, uh, the big weight, which I suspect is a big part of what makes the, uh, the really adverse uh, uh, consequence of the disease if you get it symptomatically, but maybe he doesn't have it symptomatically. Symptomatically, can we stop talking about what Trump failed to say exactly right about white supremacy at the debate? That was already overplayed. Yeah, I was getting uh, tired. I, I mean, the day after the debate, I wrote about it after listening to it and reading the transcript, and I was interested in the subject of how he handled that question about white supremacy. But it was made such a big deal of in the press. He didn't. He he denounced white supremacy. He said sure twice, or was it three times? But then he didn't say it emphatically enough. They're going to go on for two days about how he didn't say 
He was against white supremacy emphatically enough or in exactly the right way. You know, I think they overdid it, which made it seem like they were being overprotective of Joe Biden. And um, also that they were just uh, desperate to find something to, to say against Trump and to make race the central issue. And to make the fact that the right wing is worse than the left wing the central issue. Trump's theme during the debate was that the left wing was worse, and he really pushed that hard. So it seemed like the commentators were trying to beat that back and get it to be about how the right wing is racist, not that the left wing is given to violence and its outrage about racism. Anyway, maybe that's all overshadowed now, and we'll just be back to the coronavirus, which actually had been a big topic in September. It seemed to be the issue that Biden had wanted to forefront. So Biden has an opportunity to forefront coronavirus again. Um, we'll see how that works out today. Now, the VP debate next week looms large. We've been talking about how Kamala Harris is perhaps secretly the real presidential candidate, and now we can say the same thing about Mike Pence. So it's almost like next week's debate is the presidential uh, uh, debate. Maybe, uh, maybe Trump will withdraw. I mean, if Trump is looking at the polls and really believes he's going to do badly and know that he missed an opportunity to shift opinion in that debate, if that opportunity genuinely existed, if it could have been done, he knows already that he didn't do it. The betting odds have vastly diverged. Uh, Trump could uh, say that he's uh, far too sick, withdraw from the whole thing, and uh, maybe uh, Pence could be the candidate. When I first had that thought this morning, I said, uh, I said Pence, he's, he's clean, he's articulate. And then I realized I had said the the old Biden line about uh, Barack Obama back before Obama had the nomination and uh, picked uh, Biden as his VP, uh, Biden had promoted Obama saying he's clean and articulate. It's storybook man. So now it's a strange news storybook in which uh, Trump has the COVID-19 and maybe Pence could step into the role of presidential candidate. They've worked so hard at running Trump down as a person, as someone with various unpleasant personal characteristics. Pence doesn't have any of that. If Pence could suddenly be the candidate, Trump having the disease is a perfect excuse to swap in a new candidate when you can see that your guy isn't uh, has been uh, uh, destroyed in advance of the election. The fact that a lot of people have already voted in the election is a problem, and he can't change the ballots now, so I'm not even sure how you could do that if Trump uh, were to uh, withdraw. How could that even be pulled off? Would people even understand, or would they say it's a scam? I'm trying to just read my... Uh, my posts this morning, is, uh, which is my uh, idea for this podcast, but now I've put all this extra stuff in. You can see there's something in the podcast that's not on the blog. I'm just jumping off the blog, but I'm also kind of proofreading the blog. I hate to leave errors in the blog. Okay, the next post is uh, on a different subject. It's not all about Trump and the coronavirus this morning, and it's not all about the harvest moon either, or bird songs, or meat songs. So this post is a quote from Yasha Monk. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but he's someone I follow on Twitter. I actually forget who he is, but I do follow him on Twitter. Well, I can easily click on this and tell, tell you who he is. I don't want to be disrespectful to him. He's the founder of Join Persuasion, Associate Professor S. 
a, at uh, John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, contributing editor to The Atlantic. Okay? So I follow him. He's the author of a book called, um, what was that book? The People versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. All right. Sounds like a good idea. A little generic. I don't know where he is politically, and I don't know if it matters for this purposes. But uh, he says, um, uh, in this tweet I saw this morning, holy S asterisk asterisk T, that's hard to say, over the course of three years, the number of Americans who say they feel justified in using violence to achieve their political goals has gone up from 8% to over 33%. And he's got a graph showing this. Uh, the question asked was, how much do you feel it is justified for your party to use violence in advancing political goals? Options never justified, a little, a moderate ma- amount, a lot, and a great deal. And uh, we can see, and, and I, I'm not sure if uh, the justified or is collecting all the answers other than never presented. Oh no, here it says percentage answering yes. Yeah. Uh, if you if you have any of the positive ones, a little, a moderate amount, a lot and a great deal are all grouped together. So the the uh, 33% is the ones that don't say never. Uh, you know, uh, well, you know, this is about interpreting the question. If you think the American Revolution was worth doing, you shouldn't say never. So I think this is a junk question. I don't know. It does sound like everybody's ready to take to the streets and join the people who are sledgehammering shop windows and looting and uh, shooting police officers as they sit in their cars. Um, this this could be when, is it ever right to have a revolution? I don't, I, I'm surprised that uh, a two-thirds majority is saying never. So what's with the holy shit response from Yasha Monk? I don't know. I'm uh, thinking more about this post. I, I'm, uh, I don't think it's as dire, uh, shocking a development as you might uh, initially think. Okay, the next uh, post is, I'm, I put up uh, a tweet by Jennifer Rubin, who's the Washington Post columnist who claims to be a conservative, but is just rabidly against uh, Trump. And uh, is just a big anti-Trump columnist as far as I'm concerned, but uh, she does technically identify as a conservative. You can do that. It's easy to say there's nothing conservative about Trump. That's not what conservatism is. You're entitled to say that, to define conservatism, but that's Jennifer Rubin. And she has a short, uh, a four-word tweet, which is obviously a response to the news that Trump has coronavirus, and it says he should resign immediately. And I said, this is hate speech against the disabled, the idea that if you have something physically wrong with you, you can't do your job. And I seriously mean that. The idea that he should resign because he tested positive for coronavirus you have to apply the same principle to everyone. Someone has an illness, someone has something wrong with them. The idea that they can't work, they need to be consigned to the just disabled category and sit idle. Now, possibly, and actually now that I think of it, probably, Ruben has some extra thought behind that. It's not just that people with coronavirus can't be president. It's that, or that there's a special rule 
for Trump. I'm not willing to apply it to all the people who are as disabled as that. It's a special role for Trump because I just don't like him. The theory could be something like because Trump mismanaged the coronavirus, the nation's response to the coronavirus, the fact that he got it is... Uh, showing how wrong he was, underscoring it. It's just the ultimate uh, revelation that he's doing everything wrong because he got it, and he should resign for his mishandling of the coronavirus. I'm going to say she probably would say that if she could be challenged by my point, which is don't, don't consign the disabled to joblessness. Disabled people can work too. Not there are some disabilities that go beyond your capacity to work, but we shouldn't be eager to uh, demobilize the, the disabled. The next post is, if Trump and Pence both got sick, it's not clear who would be president. President Pelosi invoking the Sec- Su- Succession Act would lead to chaos. That's the headline on a May 20th, 2020 WAPO article by LawProf. Sanford v. Levinson, which is getting tweeted about this morning as there's a lot of wild talk this morning. I shouldn't say this morning twice. I'm going to edit that out. There's a lot of wild talk about Nancy Pelosi becoming the first woman president laterally. That is, breaking not the glass ceiling, but opening the glass window that never had a working lock anyway. It's good to have a somber, thoughtful, professional analysis standing by. Now here's Sanford Levinson from last May. Should only the president become ill, the vice president can take over following the protocol laid out in the 25th Amendment. But if the vice president becomes incapacitated as well, then we could face a constitutional crisis. It would be triggered by the inadequacies of the Presidential Succession Act passed in 1947, when there was no vice president because Harry Truman had succeeded Franklin D. Roosevelt. Under its rules, the Speaker of the House and the President pro tempore of the Senate would be next in line of succession, followed by the the members of the cabinet, beginning with the Secretary of State. Until the until nineteen forty seven succession had passed through the cabinet. Congress added the Speaker and President Pro Tem on the grounds that the President should desirably be an elected official, even if not part of the executive branch. This might make sense in theory, but it could be truly terrible in practice. Should both both Pence and Trump be unable to serve, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Democrat of California, would become president under the act, handling the White House, handing the White House to a different party without an election. Should she be unable or unwilling to serve, then the office would go to Senator Charles E. Grassley, Republican of Iowa. Any effort to transfer power from Trump and Pence to Pelosi would surely inspire legal and political challenges, adding to chaos at precisely the moment the nation desperately needed stability. And I said, why? The act clearly designates Pelosi as next in line. Is Levinson saying that the Succession Act could be challenged as unconstitutional? He notes that Article 2 of the Constitution gives Congress the power to provide for the case of removal, death, resignation, or inability, both of the president and vice president, declaring what officer should then act as president. And now this is 
Levinson again, it is difficult to imagine that Trump would deny and denounce as fake news any suggestion that he lacks the ability, in the words of Article One, Section 2 of the Constitution, to discharge the powers and duties of the presidency. And then I said, that is, can the Succession Act apply? Congress has the power to provide for succession, but what is the scope of that power? You need an interpretation of the word inability. The 25th Amendment is relevant to the question whether the president is unable, but what if both the president and the vice president become deathly ill? Who says that there's inability when the effect would be to trigger the Succession Act and bring in the Speaker of the House from the opposing party? Levinson says, the Succession Act, first of all, bespeaks a simplistic theory of democratic legitimacy that ignores the prominent role that political parties, which have grown far more polarized since 1947, play in the American system. And I said, Pelosi might not even want the job because it would require her to resign from her position in Congress, only to serve out a presidential term that ends in January. And what about Grassley? He's 86. Maybe he knows that while he's okay hanging on as a senator, he doesn't belong in the presidency. And then back to Professor Levinson. There's also a serious arg argument first laid out by Yale Law School professor Akhil Reed Amar and his brother Vikram Amar, now dean of the University of Illinois College of Law, in a 1995 essay in the Stanford Law Review that the Succession Act is unconstitutional. Article 2 specifically says that Congress, in setting rules of succession, must select an officer as a replacement for the president and vice president. Members of Congress, the argument goes, are not officers because they are elected officials and not presidential appointees. Another legal argument holds that the incompatibility clause does not apply if a member of Congress were to serve as president or vice president because officers refer to people appointed by the president, not to the chief executive position itself. Under that interpretation, Pelosi could retain her legislative office if the act were upheld as constitutional. Well, that seems crazy, doesn't it? The idea that the president could also be Speaker of the House? I don't like that legal argument. I would have elided that from the quote if I had thought a little more. That's, a, that's, the, that's the problem of why Pelosi would need to reti re retire, re resign from the House to take the position of president under the Succession Act. But there's an argument that she wouldn't even need to do it. But uh, if she doesn't need to do that, then it seems like the Succession Act would be beyond the power of Congress to designate her as the one that could do that. That's a little parrot, you know, complication in there. I don't see how the act is constitutional if she doesn't need to resign. Back to Levinson. To put it mildly, it is hard to imagine these questions being litigated in real time should Republicans try to prevent Pelosi from taking office or should she try to serve as president and speaker simultaneously. And I said, how would this play out? I assume there would be a tremendous resistance to getting to the point of saying both the president and vice president suffer from inability. But here's an idea. The president could resign before things go too far, and then that, and that would make 
Pence president and empower him to pick a vice president. That would go haywire, however, because the appointment of a new vice president under the 25th Amendment requires a majority vote of both houses of Congress. Or do you think Democrats, for the good of the country, would confirm Pence's choice if Pence, too, is ailing and approaching inability? That's the idea that this new extra person that we don't even know yet could become president quite quickly. Trump resigns because he's unable. Pence becomes president and picks the next vice president. That person is confirmed and is vice president. And then Pence becomes unable, and this new vice president person uh, uses the 25th Amendment and uh, declares that Pence is uh, uh, unable to serve as president. And then this person, who would it be? Uh, who could this be, this person that, uh, that the, uh, both houses of Congress could vote a majority to approve? Who, would, who could Pence pick? At first I thought, the ideal person that everyone could agree on, could finish the presidency until January, would be Mitt Romney. But then I thought, well, Mitt Romney's a senator. Why would he want to, he probably wouldn't want to resign his position as senator in order to take over. Or yeah, actually, when I think of Mitt Romney, he probably would step up and do what was asked. He would do it for the good of the country. The other alternative I thought of, uh, if that uh, desire to hold on to the positions you currently hold is dominant, would be um, Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan doesn't uh, isn't in Congress anymore, and he's vetted, and he seems very clean and uh, moderate, and would handle the job uh, well. So that's uh, that's my if you want to uh, take bets, uh, put money now on the idea that by the end of the year the president will be Paul Ryan. Okay, I also think uh, Mitt Romney is an acceptable bet, but you know this is all inappropriate to even be talking about because I'm suggesting that uh, certain people who are not currently terribly ill will become terribly ill, and I, I don't wish that on anybody, so I don't want to talk about that. I hear you sighing in the background. 85 to 90% of people in Trump's demographic, 70 years old yeah. or older, even overweight, do not get seriously ill. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They test positive, and then they don't get seriously. Okay, so a 15, we're not even talking about him dying, just becoming 10, in, unable to perform the job. And I would just say that a 15% chance of something happening is worth thinking about. 10, 15%. I would be pretty alarmed to think I had a 15% chance of having serious disabled well, you, 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 uh, you tend to get alarmed. Also, the country needs someone to be president, so a, a chance that small is a very substantial chance that needs to be taken seriously. Also, it's worth using the occasion to examine what's not right about the laws that apply, the succession. And that's the last paragraph here is, whatever happens this time around, we should see the problem with the Succession Act. I think Levinson is right to propose, as he does, that we return to the line of succession that puts the Secretary of State after the Vice President. That's what it was before 1947. They went through the cabinet beginning with the, with the Secretary of State. By the way, Mike Pence and Karen Pence uh, just tested negative. Oh, Mike Pence tested negative, so uh, late-breaking news. That's, that's good to hear, and I hope it does stay simple. I don't like these complicated things, and I really hope that we can just get a 
clear vote when election day comes, a clear result, and, uh, and, and get to that. I hope uh, Trump and Pence stay healthy enough to finish their term in uh, a way that isn't disrupt and, and that this extra disruption doesn't occur. And I hope we can focus on getting a clean election, a good election. And I hope the outcome, the thing that I hope the most is that there's a very clear outcome and everybody can accept reality, whether they like the outcome or not.